Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Advancing Racial Equity 4.0 with me, your host, Shireen, the HR Conversationalist. Now, this episode is a bit of a special one for me. It's with a fabulous author called Joel Edward Gozer, who wrote a book, America's Unholy Ghosts, The Racist Roots of Our Faith and Politics. Now, the book is fascinating, a very easy read. But the conversation I had with Joel is even more so. This conversation is, is repurposed on a, based on a live that we did together in January of 2021, when clearly many of us were still asleep after coping with Christmas in semi-lockdown. And because of the eloquence and the depth of not only Joel's book, but some of the things he had to say, I wanted to give it another outing. So although this technically isn't a brand new episode, if you've missed the live, I don't think you'll be disappointed that I chose this one. Because I know some people were thinking, like, Shireen, where did you find this guy? Why, (laughs) like, why, how, like, what, like, I'm I'm in, but like, how did this happen? So, as we all know, I do partake in a little bit of LinkedIn stalking. Now, Joel, I'm not underestimating. I don't even think you've got 500 followers. How many followers do you have? Um, uh, You know, somewhere between zero and, you know, 10 or 15, uh, something like that. Joel and I connected months ago. Don't ask me how this happened, but we connected months ago. And then Joel messaged me to say, yeah, I don't do anything to do with HR or business. So basically, (laughs) yeah, I'm out in all your business, Joel. I've got the message, right, in, in yeah, my phone. Yeah, it is true. I've got receipts. So, yeah, Joel was like, I'm not interested. <laughs> no, you didn't say that. No, but you were just like, look, that's not my that's not my job. Anyway, because, you know, my middle name is Persistent and Tenacious. <laughs> so um, I slid into your DMs because I saw a post. And I was like, I didn't know Joel wrote a book. And then I started nosing And I was like, Joel, so did I not beg you? I was like, Joel, <laughs> You can't, because I, I was afraid that like there was something like some false understanding. I was, and, I, and I told you, I was like, you know, I, I know how to cost people their jobs. I don't necessarily know how to protect them and help them thrive uh, in it. And I was so thankful that, that you did reach back around. But I thought it's really relevant because one of the things I I find myself saying over and over again is, we don't understand racism. And I'm going to say the collective we, we don't understand racism. We still keep talking about racism like it's behaviour. We still keep talking about racism like it's Trump as an individual, like the individuals who stormed Capitol Hill. Now, yes, that is racism, but it is a form of racism. And my concern is when we start making it about individuals, and we vilify individuals, and in most cases, rightly so. So this is not giving them a pass. This isn't what this is about. But when we don't seek to go any deeper and we just brush it off and go, oh, Trump's out of office, this person's in, they're going to save us, we are completely missing the foundations of how West, I'm going to say Western Mm -hmm. society and racism, as somebody said, it's a euphemism, it's a politer way of saying but, you know, how racism and, you know, the colonizers, how they went all over Europe and then Africa and, you know, all these places and then started. This whole idea stems from mm-hmm. the, 
you talk about in here. So I'm going to shut up now, Jogs. I think I've like set the scene enough. So I've, I've completely gassed you up now. It's like, well, I appreciate that. that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I appreciate that. Can you explain this whole idea of the foundation of racism and, and where this ideology, racism is an ideology and where it came from? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it, a lot of the book that I write about actually takes place in England. And what I'm... <laughs> just repeat that. Yeah. Just repeat that. England was the original scene of the crime. Yeah, the original crime, crime scene. That's, that's the original crime scene that I, that I write about in the book. And in many ways, uh, the racial world was, came on the hills of the religious world. And on the hills of the religious wars in particular... And what the writers that I was that I write about, uh, the first two in particular, uh, Thomas Hobbes and John Locke, they're trying to find a way to do a couple of things. One, they want to bring the wars of religion to an end. And two, what they want to do is to set up England to reap all the profits that the world can offer them. Right. And so how do you bring the religion, the wars of religion to an end? What they want to do is they want to create a more rational world. So rather than leaning so uh, far into our religious natures, what they want to do is say we've got to begin re uh, leaning into our rational natures. And yet they defined reason in a very particular way. They individualized reason. And so when rich white men we're writing about what reason is, it ends up looking exactly like rich white men. Right. And once that happens, anybody that doesn't think like a rich white man is deemed irrational. And in this age, to be less than rational becomes less than human. And they devise schemes where they send people throughout the world to take non-white peoples, send them to colonies to work in order to profit uh, the, Eng the English colony. And so, you know, this becomes the era of where we start thinking in terms of scarcity. And yet what scarcity ended up happening, uh, ended up justifying for Thomas Hobbes was unmitigated accumulation. And so who who are humans in this, this uh, era? Well, the preeminent example of human is the rich white man with the white wig on his head. Who is the opposite of that? It's the human with an afro on their head, uh, particularly a female afro. You can do anything you want to with. Right. And so it is very much not only racialized, but but uh, rooted deeply in gender as well. Um, it becomes a way of justifying our use of African-Americans. Um, in order to uh, profit from their from their un unrequited labor, yeah. Right. So it it, uh, it was a very rational project, um, and what we don't talk a lot about is how the rise of reason and the rise of racecraft uh, happened in the same time. Well, what what I talk about in the book is just to keep it like at a ten thousand foot perspective. Is this changes uh, the way that the world thinks about the very nature of politics, the very nature of economics, the very nature of justice? All of these things are being reconsidered, as well as the very nature of religion. And yeah. so, what I'll examine is how three lies end up dominating our political imagination. The first lie becomes that government is not about the common good. 
rather than government being about the common good, government gets reduced to the preservation of property. Of course, what that means is that government only serves those with a lot of property. You know, that that becomes <laughs> the end of that. Uh, economics, uh, when you think about the workplace, how do we how are we trained to think about economics? We begin thinking about economics as a moral free math. And so when I go to economics classes, I get grids and graphs. You know, I don't learn a whole lot about what people are going through and uh, who are impoverished in America. We talk a lot about our gross national product, but we don't talk much about our gross domestic poverty. And so this and, and before these times, I mean, all we didn't necessarily think this way. And when the government no longer takes care of poor folks and when the economy no longer takes care of poor, poor folks, the question becomes, what does justice look like? Well, justice becomes looking like, begins to look like a brutal enforcement of the status quo. And so this begins in America to harmonize our ideas of democracy with the institution of slavery. And so what ends up happening is that you have the slave system that is developed and, and we have these three dimensional approaches to justifying why uh, it is that we can treat people this way. You know, so like one of the things, you know, America was founded on is all men are created equal. Well, how does Thomas Jefferson write that? He writes that because he is able to question the very humanity of African-Americans. Because for his favorite philosopher, John Locke from England, what John Locke talks about is how African-American or Africans in are having sex with baboons. And what do we call their children? You know, and he starts painting these, these images that put the question in the head in white people's head of whether or not African-Americans and Africans meet the full standard of uh, gold standard of humanity. And because what John Locke will talk about is he says, you know, not everything that looks gold is gold. You just don't know. When you say what's a human, you just don't know what that is. And to get down to the level of how sick this becomes, when we have Willie Lynch, the Willie Lynch letter uh, that is released in Georgia, and they're talking about how is it that we can protect slavery, there becomes three steps within this process. The first thing that Willie Lynch says that you've got to do is you've got to tie up uh, the strongest slave. You've got to tar and feather him. You've got to tie his limbs to horses, and then you've got to set him on fire and allow these horses to pull him apart. And then Willie Lynch says the next thing that you've got to do is you've got to start raping African-American women. And what you're trying to do is create this frozen psychological state so that these injustices can carry forward based off on their own momentum and keeping people frozen in the psychological state. Now, for historians, there are some questions about the historical validity of the Willie Lynch letter. Yeah, I was going to ask you that because there's a lot yeah. of people in his yeah. fold. Not yeah. Real. So people, some people question it, but what cannot be questioned is that we wrote our laws in line with the Willie Lynch letters. So there are laws that allow slave uh, uh, enslavers to rape women. There are laws that allow them to dismember women. And this type of activity was happening throughout uh, the Virginia that formed the founding fathers of George Washington, who's the father of America, 
Thomas Jefferson, the father of the Declaration of Independence, and James Madison, the father of our Constitution and Bill of Rights. And so this is kind of the background of the imagination that forms the American experiment uh, and gets written into America's very DNA. Um, and so, uh, you know, what we are witnessing throughout American history is particularly within our racial crisis, is it's not that the experiment is not working, it's that the experiment's performing precisely the work it was designed to do. Um, and uh, what, what, I, what I talk about that keeps in our, that was so powerful is this idea of just questioning people's equality could do all the racist work that was needed to be done. You don't have to answer those questions. So why are poor people poor? Well, maybe, or why, why, why are more, more uh, African-Americans in poverty? Maybe they're just not as smart. Why are they more likely to be unemployed? Maybe they're a little bit more lazy. Why are their schools bound to fail? Maybe they're just not doing things right. Rather than understanding from the very inception that here in America, we were intentionally designed to craft these inequalities. When everyone assumes, and I, you know, to be fair, this conversation is becoming less and less because, you know, like people are a bit like, oh, you know, I can't really say that anymore. But mm-hmm. when the protest started last year um, on the back of the murder of George Floyd, yeah. there were so many people in the UK. So I can't tell you, Joel, who were just under this illusion, right. deliberate or not, I don't know, that we did not have an issue with racism. Like genuinely, we didn't have an issue with racism. Oh yeah, no, this is this is a worldwide phenomenon. And you know, one of the things that I talk about is that, you know, what becomes important in the age of reason is what we know. It's not who we know, and it's not intimacy, that knowledge is divorced in many ways from our relationship with one another. And it's only the, through, through a very diverse set of relationships that we can have any type of self-awareness of what we're participating in. Uh, but this phenomenon obviously happens in America. Nobody in the South thinks they're racist, and everybody in the North thinks that the, that the South is racist, but they're, they're not racist, you know? Um, and yet... When, you know, when MLK was looking at things, he said, listen, you know, when this nation was uh, founded, my folks were considered two thirds of a person. Mm-hmm. And throughout our history, we have only continued to be devalued. Now we're only half a person of everything good in this life. We have half of everything that's bad. We have double. And when you look at how this experiment has kept on going now, uh, African-Americans in America are not two-thirds of a person. They're not 50% of a person. They're a dime on the dollar. That the average white family is literally worth over 10 times in wealth. The average mm. When you look at the inequalities, whether it's policing, imprisonment, housing, um, the, you know, uh, we, we are very quick to sacrifice sacrifice african-american lives and to keep this space between you know like one of the things you talk about is is the silence that covers these issues um because we're able to keep the the space between what has happened to black kids and what is happening to kids who to my kids who are white um and to think along the those two realities as two different realities rather than than to embrace uh all of our children as our children and to fight uh for Black America, understanding that, you know, the fight for racial justice is not just about saving Black families. It's about saving the very soul of our nation. 
Yeah. What is it you think that ha- makes white people so? They're not anti-equality, but they're anti the focus on black people. Where where is that coming from? You know, I think that there is a really important historical moment uh, that happened that, that for for the most part we miss, but I think that there's a lot to learn from that, and that's when Ronald Reagan uh, was actually running for governor in California, and so he is running after having fought against the civil rights bill after supporting a segregationist for president and basically every racist Ronald Reagan is running for governor to provide the voice uh, of America and there there is a meeting of, among national black republicans that happens in Santa Monica California and there is a lament that happens that having leading candidate who doesn't support civil rights And perhaps in his only public moment, Ronald Reagan really loses it. And what he says is he says, I am not a racist. How dare you call me a racist? How dare you question my integrity? He said, I wouldn't have supported Barry Goldwater, who was a segregationist, unless I knew he wasn't a racist. And the way that Ronald Reagan thought about these issues is very much the way that white Americans think about these issues, is they think about racism just based off of their one or two relationships with African Americans, who they were kind from. Now, what ends up happening historically is that Ronald Reagan becomes the premier politician for the rejection of Martin Luther King Jr.'s vision. And what separated King And Reagan, one of the many things that separated them, when King talked about racism, he was talking about the public policies that shaped our life together and the end results of these public policies that can be seen in the lives of African Americans and the poorest and most marginalized among us. Now, as uh, as a white folks, it's in our best interest to often keep these questions at a very superficial level, very much like Ronald Reagan. And it's not, and this isn't to bash Republicans because Democrats do the same thing. And and MLK, you know, it was very clear that this was a bipartisan effort to support uh, the racial inequalities that he would, that he was intentionally trying to, to write. But I think, you know, the tragedy is, is that within the, within the way that racism has evolved, the greatest threat is not in the far extremist. It's in the moderates who are superficial on these issues. Um, and, you know, even as, you know, you read a letter from Birmingham today, um, yeah. you know, what becomes clear is that who MLK is afraid of is not the 7,000 people gathered at the Capitol. It's not the president, even though that's terrifying. It's not to, uh, not to diminish those fears. What he is afraid of is the 70 million people in the background that had voted for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. What he's afraid of is beyond the 70 million who had voted for Donald Trump, the 300 million that have refused to really fight for racial justice and racial equality in a nation that learned how to place a man on the moon without even being able to feed our own children. You know, so right. these, these type of ways of thinking about, about things, uh, I think that it represents two very different traditions on how uh on what the problem really is mm-hmm. uh most people in the neighborhood that i'm from 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 uh which is predominantly african-american think along king's lines on these issues that this thing is systemic i'm not talking about you know 
you not saying hi or this that or the other even though that can happen and then the community that i was raised in we're the children of ronald reagan who know that we're not racist mm. despite the racial inequalities of our society and so mm. the ability to you know part of what the trick of white supremacy becomes is the ability to not to deny what the facts say and what our eyes can see uh on these realities can i get because you know like, I, I i've been i think my two-year-olds can recite what white supremacy is this is how often i talk about it in my house. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> i'm like that's an example that's an example that's it because you know like on the real i've got a, like i've got to educate my partner you know so but for the imagine that somebody just dropped here today and had no idea about racism please joel can you explain to people what white supremacy is and what it means the mm. fact that it is not the Ku Klux Klan, it is not the mm. far right. Could, mm. could you just explain that for, for, for everyone, for the benefits? So white supremacy is the Birmingham bombings of the little girls that get killed in their own church, right? It blows up. But this is where the white supremacy comes in, is it comes into political calculations of JFK who refuses to respond because he was safe not to respond he was he was more safe not to respond than to really get involved he knew it would cost him his political power if he got got involved you know under reagan you know we get trained in free free market economics that thinks that self-interest is the only way that we can live our lives and so white people feel entitled to absolute recklessness from economics to how we care for the earth to this, that, or the other. And so white supremacy becomes this one-dimensional way of thinking in a three-dimensional world that only questions what is in it for me and that already has leverage on its side. And within that, you know, when, you know, when I, when I moved, when I thought about race, for me to think about, uh, the realities of my family and myself compared to most African-Americans in America, for me to think that those differences were anything other than our hard work, anything other than our own personal virtues, was to deny what we had been told all of our lives. Yes. Uh, and so um, we had been raised to think in individualistic terms, you know, Reagan was very much about the rugged individual. What did King talk about? He talked about our interdependence and that the truth of the matter was that the inequalities that our nation has experienced are based off of exploiting poor people and in particular African-Americans. And so like we had a very innocent perspective of what our capitalistic system was. What King said is that your your system not 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 innocent? After slavery, it was based off of exploiting exploiting poor people, and you said that you know you're afraid of communism, basically because you're afraid of really dealing with your own inequalities and your own the way that you treat African Americans and the way that you treat the poor people. And what mm -hmm. he was attempting to do was to get us to think along the spectrum of possibilities. He saw threats within communism. He felt communism would make people just simply cogs in a state machine is the way that, mm -hmm. the way that he phrases it. Um, 
but he believed fundamentally that equality was inherent in our natures. And since it was inherent in our nature, it was the call of government, the call of employers, the call of all of us together to make sure the equality that is in our DNA gets reflected in our life together. And I think that's the, it's the difficult or challenging or obstacle thing at the moment, because, and I know you made this point before, but we're going back to this idea of, I don't know how many people who are, um, I'm not going to say of the elite, because, you know, that makes it sound like, but they've done well, a bit older, done well. And they've said, oh, yeah, but Shireen, you know, I don't, it's not like I disagree with it, you know, because I think the killing of George Floyd was terrible. Oh, my goodness, it was terrible. Mm-hmm. But I do maintain that, you know, if you've got the right ethic, the right ambition, and you just get on with it, I think you can transcend all the issues that to do with your race. And so mm-hmm. inadvertently, it's going back to, it's almost like people feel like by addressing racism, that mm-hmm. somehow, like, I don't know whether it's like they feel black people are inherently lazy or that we're going to slack or we're just going to, like, wait for opportunities. And what I'm saying is, listen, much more hardworking as a people you can get because mm-hmm. for sudden years we work for free, right? Mm-hmm. Even today we work in organisations where we are not paid the same as somebody else who doesn't look like us. Mm-hmm. So come and, t- and, and, and because of the inequality from that perspective, we work harder because mm-hmm. we know there is only the opportunity for one of us, not all of us. We know we can never step into an organisation within the UK and have 90% of the employee base be black, mm-hmm. right? No, they would not feel comfortable to hire five black people on the bounce because they would worry, back to your point, about it's safer to do nothing rather than explain why you've done that because it looks like you're making a point. So the, I, I struggle with that whole rationale that keeps going back to, mm-hmm. even when you know the history, as black people, you know, stop playing the victim, stop, you know, da, 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 just it, this is up to you now. These were absolutely the the quote-unquote truths that were written in my mind before I moved into an inner city community, right? Um, and so it was easy for me to believe that Black folks were lazy um, until I knew Black folks, you know, until I was within a Black community. It was easy for me to believe that inner city schools struggled and failed because those kids weren't just, weren't quite as sharp uh, until I met these these children. The teachers didn't work as hard until I met the, these these teachers. Um, and what became very clear to me is that in the community that I grew up, being average was very safe. To be average is human, you know? I mean, that's what we are. We're, we're average. Uh, and yet what I found within the Fifth Ward context was that to be average was to be lethal. And mm-hmm. in our high school, you know, we will send more of our students to prison for nonviolent offenses than we will to college. And it has nothing to do with their work ethic. It has nothing to do. It has to do with the zip code that they were born in and the injustices that we have become comfortable with, you know, and even if getting back to kind of that Willie Lynch letter, this idea of creating a, a frozen psychological state uh, is very much very well describes, you know, where we are as a nation that we've, that we have embraced these injustices 
uh, believing that they would just disappear. You know, one of one of the one of the brilliant things that Reagan does is he inaugurates MLK Day. Uh, it was a brilliant move uh, by Reagan. He's forced into it. He doesn't want to do it. Well, on the other side, what he was able to figure out is that by pretending that the work of civil rights was accomplished, you can turn the page and keep on going. By pretending that we honor King, we can ignore 99% of things that he said and kind of harmonize his message with this colorblind uh, injustices that defined the American order. You know, like, I I mean, I would say that, you know, Ronald Reagan became president in 1980, and he's been president ever since in mm-hmm. very, very meaningful ways. He took our country down a very different path than where we would have been. And I think that's why, um, you know, those of us that got very um, itsy on LinkedIn yeah, <laughs> today and yesterday, because it was well in the UK you had the tale of two cities right so you had the tale of two cities so you had you know MLK day yesterday mm-hmm. so you had people talking about Monday blues mm-hmm. right and I'm looking and I'm going are you effing serious like Rome is sodding burning like what's going on and you want to yeah. talk about Monday sodding blues so we yeah. had that going on but then we also had the quotes of you know I have a dream that I, you know da 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 and I'm yet again, and everyone's like, like lapping it up, right? So, oh yeah, mm, 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 mm. Mm-hmm. you know, and I wish there was more of this talk, you know, rather than, you know, and I'm thinking, so I was like, let me just go and share letters from a Birmingham jail, because I think there's some people that haven't read this. So mm-hmm. let's just go and take each paragraph bit by bit and go and, 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 and go and read it. Because there is this thing about, it's almost like it's using mm-hmm. MLK, it's using civil rights leader, because let's all remember, MLK was not Martin Luther King was not universally embraced mm-hmm. back in the let's let's and let's remember he was assassinated, but nobody ain't talking about they don't want to talk about that. Yeah. So it's this like, it's almost like using those same people who fought for fought for us and you know the injustices for black people, for the poor, for Jewish people, and using it as a weapon against us to keep us quiet, to say, mm-hmm. well, look, we're supporting you because we're coming with hashtag Black Lives Matter. We're coming with happy Martin Luther King Day. We're coming with all of this stuff. So, mm-hmm. you know, don't say that we're not supporting you because look here at what we're doing. But it goes back to, the, like you said, the systemic elements of what racism really is. Mm-hmm. But that gets tapered over because we all want to hold hands and sing Kumbaya onto the mountaintop. Do you know what I mean? And, you know, I mean, you know, white supremacy is reflected in very much in the way that we treat MLK. And this is one of the things that, that, that I'll write about. You know, we talk about Galileo. We talk about Einstein. You know, we talk about Newton as these transformative geniuses who changed our world. That is precisely who MLK was. You know, he, he wasn't uh, just this good hearted guy that you could use for whatever you wanted. When you read his writings uh, on American soils, he is the only political and re- religious genius that perhaps our nation has ever created um and he is on the lot i mean john locke thomas hobbs adam smith these guys have nothing on mlk they're they're geniuses in their own right i'm not trying to diminish them but i mean mlk is at a different level but this is what this is what separates uh mlk is that he writes from the bottom up right so if you think about what thomas jefferson's brilliance would have looked like if he was in the slave's cabin instead of the mansion of Monticello, he would look like Frederick Douglass mm. you know? um, because the way that these, the, the, the geniuses 
from the African-American traditions ha have written, they, they have written knowing very intimately truths that America has long tried to deny and tried to hide. Um, mm -hmm. And I think one of the important things to recognize as we celebrate an MLK Day is that the crisis that we're in here in America uh, is not because we didn't have answers to our problems. It was because the answers to our problems often came from African-Americans who we wanted to ignore. I mean, we could have achieved racial justice and racial equality for about half of what we paid for Vietnam. You know, that's not talked about. You know, but when the Kerner Commission comes out, uh, instead of rewriting inner city communities, investing in educations, investing to bring about equality, we paid about $300,000 per Viet Cong we decided to murder. Um, and MLK is calling us out for all of these things. Um, and at the bottom line, when you look at what our politics have done um, to African Americans in America, you know, uh, we are still sending people to bed hungry, uh, and the, the their largest sin was the color of their skin, in our opinion. <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, and with the issues that we face, you know, one of the, one of the things uh, that I write about in the book is it's it's during these times of crisis that we can really have the freedom to rethink things. Yeah. Um, and one, when you look at the civil rights movement, in many ways, it doesn't start with Brown versus the Board of Education, but it starts with the murder of a young man named Emmett Till. Mm -hmm. And Emmett Till is brutally murdered by the Ku Klux Klan. And his mother demands that he has an open casket funeral. And the image that gets Rosa Parks working, MLK, uh, that generation really working is the image of Emmett Till. And you know, we, we are at a point in our nation, nation's history and in world history, where we must keep the caskets open. Mm -hmm. We must keep the casket of George Floyd open. We must keep the casket of Breonna Taylor open. We must deal with the very realities that are happening 24 seven uh, within our marginalized communities. Because if we can stay within, with the caskets open, if we can learn to repent uh, we might begin learning how to begin rewriting the rules that bring these injustices to an end. Yeah, I, I oh, listen, Joel, oh my goodness, you always, you always have to take it so deep, like your book is like that, when I'm just like, I've got to stop, because like, I can't, my brain can't cope. <laughs> you give me <laughs> my brain cannot cope. Yeah. Now, I just want to go back, because you know, I did this back to front, because you know, normally like people mm -hmm. go like, oh yeah, tell me your story, and then we get into it. No, I wanted to go, listen, let's just jump yeah, straight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll get cost for not, for mm -hmm. like dilly-dallying. Now, I just want to ask you a question that, that hopefully you will answer and context your story. You're a white man. I am very much so. <laughs> you yeah. Do not need to take up the fight, as I call it, for black liberation. You do not need to put your head above the parapet. You didn't need to write a book that did not squirm from any aspects of the discomfort with racism you didn't need to do all of that can I ask you what was your equivalent of Emmett Hill or in my case it was George Floyd slash Amy Cooper and her foolishness in Central Park what was your defining moment how did you find yourself on this journey yeah. um 
of writing this and supporting and just I guess dedicating your dedicating your life to this quite early on from from what I read in your book how did that come about yeah well in many ways you know I had mentioned that it's during these time of crisis that we're ready to take bigger risks than what we would uh, otherwise and my own journey uh, comes very much from a time of very deep personal crisis where my life was very much falling apart uh, and to to the extent that I was ready to try something new. And I had a friend who taught within an inner city community that invited some friends and I to move down into that community uh, and really begin learning about something from our city, that the very city that we lived in, but that was in many ways a very different world from us. Um, and so from that time of crisis, it was a door of opportunity to take a risk and, and really make that move. And, you know, the moment that broke me um what was uh within a we we had become very close with a lot of our neighbors and a gang fight had broken out um in, in the cities gunshots went off and uh it was that evening um of seeing what was happening uh you know we had we had to run outside and we had to grab some of the kids that were caught in the crossfire and that kind of thing um and seeing those children seeing the men that were broken seeing the uh mothers of these children you know that that evening was the night that really broke me because what was clear is that what i was witnessing wasn't a reality here on one block but it was clear to me um that these were the realities of desperation that our nation creates um and so you know the reason that emmett till's mother opens up the casket to emmett till is that it wasn't about the ku klux klan it was this type of insanity is what our nation has really put up with. Um, and, you know, the way that I've experienced the journey was not perhaps making a decision um, of getting in the saddle and, and sticking with it as much as it was seeing something that I couldn't turn away from any longer and that I had no option other than to face. Um, and I think what we're witnessing in the world right now is that white people are running out of options. Um, the, the, you know, because the question is not whether or not we're going to pay for our racial sins. You know, the question is, it is you know, who's, who's are, are we going to try to keep on trying to force African-Americans to pay for this thing alone? Mm -hmm. Or are we going to stand in solidarity and say that, no, we, we can change these realities um, because, you know, um, if we don't, we will not be able to survive. Um, and it is clear that in American history, uh, you know, they tried to fight for abolition peacefully for 20 to 30 years. Um, but it wasn't until the guns came out that America was ready to make the decision. You know, and I think I think the question for America's survival right now is, are we going to have to wait until everybody's blood's in the street or mm -hmm. are we going to begin dealing with this stuff with integrity? Uh, in the here and now, you know, and, and this is my concern in America right now is that I don't think that our salvation is in liberals being able to articulate conservatives people's problems, you know, I don't see that as the path forward. Uh, the liberals were part of creating these issues, and until we deal with our own house, you know, um, we don't have a whole lot to say to the other side of the aisle. Um, and uh, it does take the courageous leadership that gets gets uh, past the bullshit 
um, in order to to really begin showing a different way is possible. Well, Joel, I just want to say thank you so much for agreeing to come in and talk to me. I am um, I'm one of these like deep, deep thinkers. So I think that's why your your book really appealed to me. Thank you for the work that you do. Um, thank you so much uh, for having reached your bre breaking point and showing us the leadership on the other side of it. So I, I really, you. you know, thank honored you. to be with well, you. Well, there you have it. My interview with Joel has finished. Goodness me, I actually forgot how good, <laughs> I actually forgot how good it was. I just, you know, I could just sit in the depths of this because it's just not the level of conversations that we're used to having, right? How often do we go back to the age of enlightenment and, and, and reasoning and the British recognising that a particular view of the world, and that's all it is, it's just a particular view of the world, somehow became the most dominant view of the world. And here we are in 2021 still trying to unpick that. It is crazy to me. So thank you for listening. Another episode of Advancing Racial Equity 4.0 with my guest, Joel Edward Gozer, and I'm Shireen, the HR Conversationalist. See you next time.